The title for this morning's talk is The View from an Empty Mind. Yesterday I talked about how adulterated is the view of life that we get from the vantage point of a cluttered and self-centered mind. Today I'll talk about the other side of the coin, namely the unadulterated view that becomes available when we empty our mind. Because the experience of emptiness is much less familiar than the experience of clutter, at least for me, I could say, or has been anyway, traditionally, I'll often be described the former, that is the emptiness, as a, the flip side of the latter, of the clutter. Hmm? So let me talk a little bit about the cluttered mind to start, which was of course the subject of yesterday's talk as well. As I said yesterday, our mind's clutter often manifests as a preoccupation which literally means being preoccupied, previously occupied. And this preoccupation, as I said yesterday, often implies falling for any of what the Buddha calls the eight worldly conditions. Which conditions? He lists them as four pairs pairs of opposites, namely profit and loss, success and failure, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. For each pair, the mind is keen, is absolutely committed to despise an option, loss, failure, blame and pain and cling obsessively to the alternative. Now, clinging, clinging fabricates the clinger, the one who clings, namely the self. And we get involved in these eight worldly conditions in order to fabricate this self. Now, say we're facing a success-failure alternative in our lives. Hmm? If the pull of those alternatives does not feel strong enough to puff up the self, because it's a little thing, you know, then we simply ignore them, become indifferent, and wait for another more effective pair to show up, namely more effective to puff ourselves up. And so, if our goal of fabricating this, in our goal of fabricating the self, we remain trapped by the eight worldly conditions and the aftermath. Is there a way out? And how? 
see, attachment to these conditions are indifferent and not the only alternatives. There is a third alternative, and it's called detachment. But you might say, isn't detachment equivalent to indifferent? No way. They are light and day, like night and day. Detachment implies a complete change in attitude. As T.S. Eliot says very beautifully in his four quartets, and let me quote just a couple of verses, verses from there. T.S. Eliot says, There are three conditions which often look alike, yet differ completely. Flourish in the same hedgerow, however. Attachment to self and to things and to person. Detachment from self and from things and from persons. And growing between them, indifferent which resembles the other as death resembles life. Couldn't have been more clear in that. The Buddha would have certainly subscribed to that. You see, detachment implies being fully connected but not stuck. Connected by a process, not by a glue. It's from that space that, can, that we can see the world undistorted because we are not glued onto stuff. Without the distortion, distortions created by our relentless wanting as a form of constructing ourselves. Detachment makes room for knowing, including the knowing of our true selves. Let me, let me illustrate what I'm trying to say with a couple of examples, concrete examples, simple examples. Last November, as I woke up in the morning after, and the day after the presidential elections, <coughs> I decided to stay in bed for a while before getting up to turn on the TV to find out who had won. I decided for, first to consult with my pillow, not about the results, but about how I would take them. I had no doubts about wishing Obama to win. I mean, I'm not saying that's a necessary conclusion, but that was where I stood. That the problem wasn't that. The question was about whether I would take the outcome personally. Whether I turn it into my own personal win or loss, success or failure 
in the language of the eight worldly conditions. Or, or would I simply see it from the perspective of whether it would benefit the earth and its inhabitants? In the end, my pillow told me, it's a very wise pillow. Well, I actually have three of them, one of them at least. My pillow told me, it would be the latter. That is, I would not take it personally. That I would take the outcome with the wisdom of detachment. I haven't heard that from my pillow. I was ready to get out of bed and turn on the TV. And I rejoice on the outcome for the sake of all of us. Or at least most of us who wanted that to happen. Another example. Uh, perhaps a more personal, but of similar relevance. In, in recent months I've had, I lost four teeth. I had them removed. And now I, I need to replace them. I haven't replaced them yet. I have the holes there. The main problem has not been the teeth, which I can, I can cope with, annoying as it can be. But with the fact that they invited the eight worldly conditions to come and plague me in the form of success, failure, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. And pain. Which of the three dentists that, that were behind this dysfunction was to be blamed for the pain <laughs> and for the failure to save the teeth. That's the way my mind moved. Fortunately, I, I saw her that there, were, there was an alternative of just to be detached and that's it. That's what's happened. After all, that's old days, you know. And so the mind sees so back between being caught in the eight worldly conditions or being detached. Or, or settling in the vast open space that detachment offered me. And eventually I have gone for the peace of detachment. It didn't fix my teeth but it fixed my heart. What I've been sh sharing reminds me of a passage in a book entitled I Am That, which records conversations of the Hindu teacher Nisargadatta with his followers. So it's a question and ask and answer record. At some point Nisargadatta is asked, what is it like when he sits at the table waiting for lunch to be served? What is he thinking of? Is he focusing on his hunger or thirst? 
Is he waiting impatiently to be served? And he answers that yes, he often feels hungry or thirsty. And yes, that he expects to be served on time. But he's not entrapped in that expectation. Rather, he's detached. Take a listen to what he says afterwards. Nisargadatta says, I'm like a cinema screen, clear and empty. The pictures pass over it and disappear, leaving it as clear and empty as before. In no way is the screen affected by the pictures, nor are the pictures affected by the screen. The screen intercepts and reflects the picture. It does not shape them. Questioner. When you say clear and empty, what do you mean? Nisargadatta. I mean free of all contents. To myself, I'm not, I'm neither perceivable nor conceivable. There's nothing I can point out and say, this is me. You identify yourself with everything so easily, I find it impossible. The feeling, I'm not this or that, nor is anything mine, is so strong in me that as soon as, as soon as a thing or thought appears, there comes at once the sense, this I am not. Wow. I wish I could get there, but, you know. I'm somewhere in that direction, moving that direction. So, if I were like Nisargadatta, you know, having empty the cinema screen of my mind, it would be now ready to get an absolutely clear and contaminated view of whatever spontaneously comes and goes. So I say, it, it, it's very good direction to move into. Just as we need to make room in our mind, in our cinema screen, if you wish, for knowing ourselves, we also need to make room for knowing the self, the, the world. Sorry. We need also to make room for knowing the world. And, and yet, in the case of the world too, our habitual strategy is much the opposite. It's illustrated by the strategy of science, for instance. I, I know that well because I was a scientist for the first half of my life. And, and we scientists, speaking in my former self, are keen, 
keen on filling our minds not only with a panoply of selective observations that we remember, but also and primarily with a theoretical framework into which to accommodate those observations. And soon the mind find itself stuck in that framework, unable to get out of it unless it can find another competitive, more prestigious, if you wish, framework to adopt and get stuck into that too. Take physics, for instance. Its main goal has been and continues to be to postulate laws that can predict the behavior of matter. And yet, as it turns out, the aspects of this behavior that cannot be accommodated in any of the theoretical constructs that physicists have tried. The, the prime example of this, although it's not the only one, is the so-called wave-particle paradox. To explain it briefly, perhaps you've heard of it before. Um, when physicists try to explain light, they do experiments, and some experiments demonstrate quite clearly that light has a form of a wave. It's a wave phenomenon that occurs in space. But when they do other experiments, it's not a wave at all, but it's a particle. In other words, the experiments cannot be understood in terms of waves, but they can be understood if light is a particle. But a particle is one thing, and a wave is another thing. They're completely incompatible constructs. And so finally, of course, the physicists have given up, but not for lack of trying, you know. Okay, okay, we have a paradox, but you know, eventually somebody will come up and will solve it for us, and we'll peace again in a framework. Well, for some things that has happened, but it's not necessarily going to happen here. After all, it's almost a century since this paradox is, is around. Could it be that there are realities that do not fit any of the construct that the mind or science <coughs> can build? Science sometimes has to accept it, but it's certainly difficult. It's a blow to its pride. <coughs> now, I was to be a biologist, very interested in physics, biophysics at times, but primarily biologists. And biology hasn't come to that place of physics where there are paradoxes that, that make it impossible to fit things in any construct. Not yet, anyway. 
But still, biologists face the option of whether to try to fit the world in a preconceived pattern or simply remain open to whatever emerges. Let me illustrate the two alternatives in the course of my own life. At first, when I was a freshman at the University of Buenos Aires, I spent hours and hours in a nearby park, a park near my home actually, botany book in hand, committed to identify by Latin name and surname every specimen of plant I run into. That seemed to be a very important task. This taxonomical period of my studies did not last very long. I soon become it soon became obvious to me how much I missed by just trying to fit every living being into a system of classification. It doesn't go very far. My next period was one in which I saw living creatures through physiology and chemistry. Uh, still a theoretical system of, on which to fit things, but richer certainly than taxonomy. It was during that period that I sat my first retreat in India with Christopher Titmus as a teacher. I still remember listening to his instructions for walking, walking meditation and re reading, uh, reinterpreting them as a lesson in physiology. Oh yes, that muscle and the name came up and I, maybe I can feel that muscle. And then I got enthusiastic about when I taught my next physiology class, which is one of the things that I taught as a biology professor, I will use this experience to illustrate the different muscles and nerves and systems that help us walk. Of course, I've, I've missed the point of Christopher's instructions, of being freshly with the experience. He was inviting to connect directly, and I was trying instead to connect with a scheme of how the body is supposed to move. And yet, in the end, this experience, this misunderstanding, this mishap that I, it was this type of mishaps that helped me find my way into the path because I saw, yeah, sure, it's fine to know physiology, but there's more to life than physiology. So, eventually, I learned to connect with what is without the intermediation of a theory. 
I discovered the way to empty the mind of theories through meditation practice. And so, when I'd walk in the country, didn't take my taxonomy book with me, quite the contrary. I'd, I'd go into the wilderness and I'd open up to a sense, to sense, to feel the underlying layers of nature, nature which would resonate, resonate with my own underlying layers. I let, let my separateness melt away, my own boundaries dissolve. This experience would have nothing to do with the structure of science, or not even with the structures of language. Rather, it had everything to do with what I might call the music of silence. Of silence echoing in an empty mind. Perhaps. Really, I better not try to call it anything. To, to conclude, let me summarize what I've been trying to convey in this talk. In order to get to know both our own mind and the world, we need to start traveling <coughs> beyond the customary and established routes. We need to turn off our pre-programmed GPS that is relentlessly telling, turn right, turn right, turn left, whatever, <laughs> imparting us instructions about the way we ought to go. You know, what I'm talking about is very much inspired resonates very much with what Julie just did to us, you know, at the beginning of the last walking period. She offered us a brief dance and she demonstrated very clearly, directly, how much can be expressed beyond the confines of language. And so, we need to make room for letting our wisdom explore whatever appears in front of us. To explore it with a spacious, unprogrammed, empty mind. In the process we are bound to run at times in the old clutter, clutter of course that it's accumulated there with 
it may still be there. But now, with the new wisdom, we can simply visit it and then bypass it or even let it go. The screen of our mind gets cleared again or largely cleared again and we let emptiness in. In fact, even language, which supports much of the clutter, as I said a moment ago, can become a way out of it. Hopefully, this talk, which is in language, contributes to that. But even more effective, let me quote uh, Rumi, a poet, 13th century mystic of Islam. He had a knack for using language itself to take us beyond the clutter of language. Listen to what he says. It's a poem from a book called Open Secret. This is a, a large segment of his poem. For years I pulled my, ex oh, my own existence out of emptiness. Then one swoop, one swing of the arm, that work is over. Free of who I was, free of presence, free of dangerous fear, hope, free of mountainous wanting, the here and now mountain is a tiny piece of a piece of a straw blown off into emptiness. These words I'm saying so much begin to lose meaning. Existence Emptiness, mountain, straw. Words and what they tried to say swept out the window down the slant of the roof. And so, out the window out the slant of the roof, although there's no roof right next to us right now, go my words as well. And somehow in letting the words go down the roof, they might manage, I might manage, they might manage, to let the fullness of things sneak in between the lines. In between the lines, the words, or the in between words actually, might manage to express the inexpressible, to describe the indescribable, 
to speak the unspeakable, to narrate the inenarrable. And, and yet, let me make this clear, in using all these words, uh, the last thing I want to do is to enshrine yet another category, category yet the indescribable all, say the supernatural. I simply and unequivocally, unequivocally wish to acknowledge that the categories enshrined on language are limited and inadequate to cover the real. As our mind gets used to get an unfiltered view of things, not filtered by words, by thoughts, by conceptual frameworks or scheme, the more it becomes capable to open up directly to the authentic vastness of things. The vastness that becomes manifest when behind the sounds we connect with the silence from where the sounds emerge. When behind the concrete sensations in our body we can connect with a sense of presence from where they emerge. When behind the images we see we can also connect from the, with the empty field from where the images emerge. And so with each of our senses including thinking Thoughts, too, emerge from an emptiness that defies description. Even though I may try to describe it by using words like emptiness or vastness, such words are simply an invitation to let the indescribable find its place in our Let's sit for a few moments. <laughs> 